All right, we are continuing our look at the Gospel of John, meeting Jesus face to face, face to face. So, if you would turn uh, turn with me to John chapter five, verse eighteen. John five eighteen. And if uh, if you'll remember, last week Jesus was in Jerusalem. And he healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. It says he was disabled or sick, um, but by the fact that he could not get up, we assume um, that he was paralyzed. And so uh, he had been that way for 38 years. Jesus comes and heals him with a word, but he does it on the Sabbath, which makes the Jewish leaders angry. And so... We're going to pick up John chapter 5, verse, I'm going to start reading at verse 16, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. But you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, there is so much here, and we desperately need your help to help us understand it. Lord, we certainly need your help to believe it and apply it. So, God, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your, of your word, that it would give life, not in and of itself, but through Jesus, through whom it proclaims or to whom it points. Would you give us life uh, in the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Okay, so you, you may not be uh, as dense as I am, but I read verses 18 to 47, and I'm, I'm left just kind of shell-shocked. Um, I don't... Right? I, I see maybe a few words that make sense, and then I hit a section that makes no sense to me whatsoever, and so I'm just kind of left down, dumbfounded um, at, what, at what Jesus says here. Um, now, again, you may, be more, you may be more intuitive than I am, brighter than I am, and um, everything I just read or heard made complete and perfect sense to you, but in case you're like me, I'm going to preach a sermon for me, Okay? I'm going, to try, I'm going to try as best I can to preach a sermon for dense people like me, and then everybody else, you can just coast. Um, or, you know, cherry-pick some things that you thought were especially meaningful. Um, because, you know, we're kind of cruising along in John, and we see miraculous things happen like healing a person who's been paralyzed for years, and we think, okay, I'm getting it, I understand, I'm with you, Jesus, and then... He does this, right? We were, we were paddling along, doing fine in the four-foot, five-foot into the pool, and then all of a sudden we got sunk in the deep end. And we're not really sure how we got there. And usually, right, we can... We tip it, there, there's, there's, there's kind of a sad response, okay, because what, what Jesus is doing here is he, he's telling us about his relationship as the Son of God to the Father, so he's really, he's kind of pulling back the curtain 
of heaven and telling us about how the Trinity works. And that's confusing, right? He's, he's showing us, he's giving us a glimpse of some eternal things. And what our response usually is to that is we say, well, that kind of talk, that kind of discussion is for like professional theologians. This stuff, this is, you know, these are the, we're in the deep weeds now. We kind of, we've, we've meandered off the fairway and all of a sudden we're not just in the rough. We're like out of bounds under the trees, okay? Uh, this stuff is above my pay grade and so I don't need to understand it. I don't need to know it. Uh, it's, it's beyond me. I just want... I just want simple Christianity. Let me, just, let me just kind of know who Jesus is and obey him, and, and I'll be fine. And again, and, and I would say that there's nothing wrong with simple Christianity. But there is something wrong with simple-minded Christianity. And that the Bible never calls us to be simple-minded. It may call us to be simple and pure and devoted in our focus, but it never calls us to be simple-minded. And so when we say things like, you know, this really covers territory that I don't need to know about, it's above my pay grade, let me offer two thoughts to that. One, nothing in this book is above your pay grade. No, No recorded scripture is too much for you or me. And what I mean by that is that John recorded Jesus saying these things for our good. If they didn't need to be said, they would have been left out of the Bible. And so the beauty of that is is that we can come to it and we can try to understand it. We don't have to automatically say, well, too hard for me. That we can actually try to glean some truth out of this. And so this is not above our pay grade. It's actually included in here. John wrote it in here so that we would believe in Jesus and that that belief would be strengthened. But then here's the second thing to add to that. That doesn't make it easy to understand. Just because it's not above my pay grade doesn't mean that it's easy for me to understand. And there's all manner of deep things in the Bible that are like that. That there are some things that we look at And they're really hard truths, or they're really deep truths, and we just don't know quite what to do with them. And that's okay, but they're still there for our benefit, and we can dig in and try to understand, even if it's hard. And so I guess I'm saying all of that to warn you that this may be a really boring sermon. Um, Or maybe to encourage you to kind of come along with me, and let's try to dig in together and see what it's saying A professor of mine would always say, uh, if you rake, you'll get leaves. But if you dig, you may unearth some treasure. And so let's let's try to put aside the rake, because there's a lot more than a pile of leaves here, and let's see if we can unearth some treasure. Jesus... And well, here's, here's where we would start. Why in the world, and actually, you know what, we're only going to talk about kind of the first 30 verses. We'll cover the second half of the speech uh, next week. Why in the world does Jesus give this long speech? Why does, he, why does he get on his soapbox? And the the answer is in verse 19. If you look there with me, Jesus said to them, 
Now, that word for said is the word reply or the word answer. So that, that should read, or I mean it, it does read, Therefore, Jesus answered them. Jesus replied to them. Who's the them? The religious leaders. And what is he replying to? He is replying, if you look back in verse 18, he is replying to their charge of blasphemy. All right, so what is, what is blasphemy? Imagine, imagine what would happen if you took 12 cans of spray paint and you went to the U.S. Capitol building and you proceeded to spray paint profanity, lewd pictures all over, the, all over the steps, on the gorgeous columns. Maybe you got inside and you started all of the beautiful artwork that's around the rotunda. You just started defacing all of it with spray paint. That is, you begin to get, of course you know what would happen, um, you would get thrown in, in jail, and rightly so, because you have taken something that is good and beautiful and worthy of protection, and you have defaced it. Your aim has been to somehow make it less beautiful, to denigrate it. That, is, that on, a, on a human scale is what blasphemy is. Because when a man claims to be God or claims to be like God, what he is trying to do is bring God down. He is somehow making God deficient, or at least that's his aim. You can't actually do that, just like you can't make the beauty of the Capitol building deficient. So also you can't make the beauty and glory of God deficient, but that is what blasphemy says, that if Jesus is, if Jesus is true in what he is saying, because he is claiming to be God, then their char- and, he, and if he's not God, if he's not who he says he is, then their charge is right. He is somehow, he is trying to denigrate uh, the beauty and holiness and otherness of God. And so they're charging him with blasphemy. You say that you're making yourself, you're making yourself equal with God. And Jesus says, Jesus says, okay, that's what you're saying. Let's, let me tell you what that means. All right? Um, this is similar to, right, this, this plagues all sort of human interaction. Uh, in, every, in every relationship you've been in, whether it's with your parents or with your spouse or with people at work, have you ever experienced that thing where you and the other person are saying the same word, but you mean completely something else by it, right? I mean, you know, again, as, as a parent... When you, come, when you look at your child and you say, I told you to do that. I did that. That's not what I meant. Right, you've had that conversation. You've probably had that conversation with your spouse before. You might have had that conversation with an employer before. Uh, I told you to do A, B, C. Well, that's what I did. Mm. Right? Where we're using the same words, but it's clear that we're using different definitions to those words. All right? So the religious leaders are coming to Jesus and they're saying... You're saying you're equal with God. And Jesus is saying, yes, but I don't think we mean the same thing. I don't think you fully understand what I'm saying when I'm equal with God. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, yes, 
But let's talk about that a little bit more. That is the whole big picture behind why he gives this long speech in verses 18 or 19 to 47. Jesus is trying to defend or reply to their charge. And here's the first thing he says. The first thing he says is that the Son is in perfect step with the Father. All right? So Jesus said to them, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord or of his own initiative, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus is looking at them and saying, if you think that I am making myself equal with God in the sense that I am another God, or that I am independent from God, or that we share some things in common, but I am, I am on the same level, I am independent, then I am not equal. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is that I am in complete union with the Father. That everything that I am doing, I'm just doing what my Father does. He works, I watch Him work, and I work. We are in perfect union with each other. The Son is in step with the Father. So they are, they, we are equal in that Jesus is of the same mind and the same heart as the Father in heaven. He is not independent, He is dependent. The Son is dependent on the Father. That's what Jesus means when He says... The Son can do nothing of His own initiative. This isn't my idea. This isn't my plan. I'm carrying out the work the Father has for me. And not only that, but this is the outflow. This work is the outflow of the Father's love for the Son. So it's not some mechanical process like God does this, then Jesus does this, and we all reap the benefit. But rather, this is what we're, what we're seeing, what Jesus is showing us, is the relationship of love and the Trinity, which I, I imagine, which I know is, is a, very, is a, that's a very abstract concept, and it's hard for us to, to take hold of that. And, we're, and we kind of even ask, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? And the answer to that question is, I don't quite know. But I know this, that behind, that behind the work of the universe is not some impersonal force. It's not some scientific formula. It's not a big piece of machinery. It is a person who loves. And because the Father loves the Son, He reveals His work to Him. And because the Son loves the Father, He, he does it. He obeys. That's what saves us. The love of the Father for the Son carrying out the work. I know that's deep stuff. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the Father and I are on the same page. I'm not doing work that God wouldn't do. Because they're accusing him of working on the Sabbath. They're saying, listen, you did something you're not supposed to do. And he says, no, I'm just doing the work that my Father's been doing. So you can't charge me with that. And really the Sabbath issue isn't the main issue here. What's at stake is my identity, who you think I am and who I really am. And so... The works, uh, the Father and the Son are of the same mind and heart. They are in step with one another. And then he says this. Not only is the Son in step with the Father, but the Son, like the Father, gives life to the dead. Verse 20. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel, so that you would be amazed or astonished or shocked. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. All right, so what is Jesus saying there? Um, First, going back to verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. It was understood, the people that Jesus was talking to would have understood that God is the one who raises the dead. Deuteronomy makes that clear, uh, 2 Kings, that when they read their Bible, they read their Old Testament, the only one who has the power to raise people from the dead is God himself. And so what Jesus is doing is he's claiming that authority. He's basically saying, I am God because I have the authority to give life and I give life to whomever I want. Jesus says that in verse 21. I give life to whomever I want. Nobody comes and gets it from me. I give it out to whomever I want. And what that means is this, that Jesus is not simply an agent of God. He's not like a prophet. All right, The prophets all worked for God and they were able to do miraculous things in the name of God but they were not God. They worked for him. And so the only other person, at least before this, who raised somebody from the dead was Elisha. Excuse me, Elijah, right? And he was a prophet, um, and he raises a woman's son from the dead. But he did so as God's agent. God told him to. What Jesus says is that he has the authority to give life to whomever he wants, which means that he is greater than any man who has ever walked the earth. He must be God. He's dependent on God, but he is God. And so you could look at it this way. It doesn't quite play out, but it's like Elijah got to take the boss's car to go get coffee and come back. Elijah ran an errand for the boss. That's what Elijah did, right? But it wasn't his car. Jesus owns the car, and he can take it wherever he wants to, all right? So Jesus is greater than any man who's ever lived because he has the power to give life. And verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus can give life because he is life. If you go back to Genesis, what you see is God breathing life into Adam. And what that means then for you and me is that our life is derived. We get it from somewhere else. We are not independent. My heart will stop beating If I do not have air and I do not have food. So my life must be derived from another source. Jesus is a source of life. He is a life giver because he is God. Jesus is making a claim to be God, which makes him greater than any man who has ever walked the earth. But there's another power that goes with that. So the Son is... In step with the Father, the Son, like the Father, can give life. And then there's something that goes next to that, and it's this, that the Son, like the Father, acts as a judge. He can judge. Look at verse, uh, back up at verse 22. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Don't 
Be shocked at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the judge they will meet, will, the judge we will meet, will be Jesus. He will be the Son. Now, judgment is not, uh, is not a very popular word. We don't, uh, we don't like that word. We kind of shy away from it. But here's what it means, right? To judge means to decide what is right and what is wrong and what the consequences will be from following one or the other path. So, really, we make all kinds of judgments all day long. Usually, we think of judgment as like this really negative thing when you look at somebody you don't like and you judge them. But judgment has a much broader sense than that, right? When I, when I choose to wear a white dress shirt as opposed to a polka-dotted muumuu to church, I'm making a judgment call, right? And I'm, what I'm discerning is, okay, good, bad, and what are the consequences, right? Uh, if I make the bad choice of a muumuu, no offense if you're wearing a muumuu, um, I don't even know what a muumuu is. Um, if, you make that, if you make that judgment call, there are going to be consequences that flow from that, okay? And, of course, then we make much, much larger judgments. Am I going, am I going to yell uh, at my son? And is that good or bad? And what are the consequences going to be of that? And I make a judgment call. Of course, if your judgment is like ju- my judgment, it's often off. It goes astray. And so we look to people above us to make judgments, particularly if we have a conflict with one another that we can't solve, right? It's, we call these people judges, and that's what they do, right? If you have to go before a judge, it's because something must be sorted out. And so what the judge does is he looks at the case as a whole. He looks at both sides, and he makes a judgment. He makes a judgment call. That's what a judge does. But the question is, where does he get that authority from? How do we decide what's right and what's wrong and what the consequences will be? Who stands above human judges? Who stands above the law or behind, rather, the law? And what the Bible teaches, anyway, is that there is one judge. And the Old Testament says that that's God himself, right? Abraham called in Genesis 18, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. And the rest of the Old Testament confirms that, that God is the one who holds judgment. My judgment is skewed because of my perspective. God, because he is omniscient, can see everything and sees all ends. He is good and right and true in himself, and so he is able perfectly to make a judgment call. He's able to say, this is good, that is bad, and these are the consequences if you go either way. That is what a judge does. That's who God is. And here Jesus is saying, that's me. So once again, Jesus is claiming to be God because he is a judge. He is the judge. Look again at verse 26. Or verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. I'm going to skip back into the Old Testament real quick. You may have uh, heard that phrase, son of man, before. Jesus uses it of himself a lot, especially in the other Gospels. Um, What is that about? If you go to Daniel chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but you can. 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel is a prophet. Uh, he's living in a place called Babylon, and he receives a vision. And this is what it says, Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. All right, so this is a picture of God's courtroom. And the one behind the judge's bench is none other than the Ancient of Days. And the picture that Daniel gives, the reason it's as descriptive as it is, it's weird to us, but what it would have said to Daniel's day is, this guy is no joke. I mean, you've got these images of fire, of royalness, you know, of royalty. Um, this is none other than the God of the universe. And his courtroom is set up. And he's about to issue judgment. Let's see what happens next. Um, he makes a judgment uh, in verses 11 and 12 that pertain to some other things in Daniel. Um, so I won't read those. But then in verse 13, Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Go back to John. What Jesus is telling those, those Jewish leaders who would know their Bible and they would know Daniel is he's saying, I am that son of man. I am the one that Daniel saw coming to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and I am the one that God gives uh, authority, dominion, judgment, and power to. So what he's telling them is, it's time to bow down. He's not claiming something obscure. He's, he's claiming nothing less than that he is God and he is the ruler of the world. It's his prerogative to judge. So the son is like the father in that he gives life. The son is like the father in that he acts as judge. His, he is equal with God in that he has authority to judge. But then this, why does, why does, why does Jesus have this? Why does he have the power of life and judgment? Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, so that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So, the son, like the father, deserves worship. The son, the same as the father, deserves honor because he is one with the father. And so, here's the sticking point. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So, to not worship Jesus, to not honor Jesus, is to not worship God. This is the central stumbling block of Christianity. This is... This is the claim that if you are not a Christian, you probably have the most problems with. Because Christians disagree with Judaism on this point. 
They disagree with Islam on this point. Basically, any other world religion that does not see Jesus as God himself, who is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed, that is our point of departure. Christians, we can, we, can have, we can have good dialogue, we can have good discussion, but there, when we come to this point, we're going to have to disagree. Because we cannot say that you are honoring any God in heaven if you are not honoring Jesus as God. This is Christianity's controversial claim. We don't just revere Jesus as a great prophet. We don't just see him as a good guy who said some really great things about helping the poor. What Jesus claims right here is that he is God in the flesh and that he deserves your worship. And if you don't give it, then you're not actually worshiping God. You can't claim to know God or, or have anything to do with God. And I, realize, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but that's how bold the claim of Jesus is. He's saying nothing else will do. The former times are past. Now you have to honor me. You have, if you want to worship God, you have to come through me. Who you believe Jesus to be is the central core of Christianity. Uh, you may be familiar with Christopher Hitchens. Um, he wrote a book, Why God is Not Great. I think that's what it's called. Uh, he's kind of a celebrity atheist, if there is such a thing. And he's a columnist, he's an author, and what he regularly asserts is that religion is bad for the world. Religion in general is bad for the world, and Christianity in particular is bad for the world. But at one point, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister. And so if you're familiar with, uh, if you know anything about denominations in America and the world, the Unitarians would be this graciously, a very, a very liberal branch of, Christian, or of, of Christianity. Like So when you look at every, every church or denomination that kind of calls itself Christian, um, these guys, Unitarians, would be way to the left. Okay? Uh, and this is, this is what this lady said. She's talking to, she's talking to an atheist, she's, and she would claim to not be an atheist herself. She says, the religion that you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith, which is what probably Grace Fellowship would espouse, right? What our, our doc, She would consider us fundamentalist, okay? Um, or our church, fundamentalist, do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And here's what Hitchens says. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. The atheist gets it, right? He looks at the claims of Jesus. Now, he doesn't believe them. He probably doesn't think Jesus ever said this. He probably thinks that this was brought in later and attributed to Jesus. And that's his point of view. But at the very least, he looks at this. He sees what Jesus' claims are, 
And he says, okay, that defines Christianity. And if you're not going to buy that, you're probably not a Christian. That's what the atheist says, the celebrity atheist. So if he can say that, surely I can jump on his coattails, right? If you don't believe this to be true about Jesus, you're probably not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Even Hitchens understands the claims of Jesus. But he, he, so he doesn't believe it, but he understands what's at stake. So let's kind of round all those back up. Jesus, this is what Jesus claims for himself in front of all these religious leaders, and he does it to answer their charge of blasphemy. They say, hey, you're saying you're equal with God. We need to execute you. That's a capital, capital crime. We're going to kill you. Here's how he defends himself. I am in step in union with the Father in heaven. So I am, I am not a different God. I am one with God, who you understand to be the only true and living God. He and I are really one. We are on the same page. I have the, the authority to give life from the dead, like the God that you worship. I have the authority to judge every man, woman, and child on the planet, like my Father, whom you worship. I am all of this and have all of this, like the, and like the Father, I deserve your worship. I deserve your honor and not your scorn. Jesus is trying to be very clear with them about who he is and what he offers. Because in view of all that, here is what he offers. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So here's the central question that Jesus is giving them. In light of all that I've said about me and who I am and what I deserve, do you hear me? Do you hear my voice? And I would ask you, do you hear his voice? And I don't just mean... Right? There's the difference between, I think we say, hearing and listening. My kids hear me all the time, but are they listening? Do they hear me in the real and obedient sense when I say, please go do that? That's what Jesus means when he says, do you hear me? Because I have the authority and I have, shall we say, the pleasure to give life to the dead. Do you hear my voice? An hour is coming. At the end of time, an hour is coming when I will raise all the dead from the tombs. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And those who have done good will be raised to life. So let me ask you this. If what Jesus says right there is true, if that day is in fact coming and he will in fact be sitting on the throne to issue judgment for good and for evil, where do you stand? Where, where does that put you? Does it make you nervous?
Remember, the standard that Jesus uses will be his own. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Jesus makes judgments that are right and true. His standard is his own righteousness. And he will inspect every centimeter of my life, every millisecond of my story, every word I've said, every word I haven't said. What will be the verdict? And here's the good news. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. For those who hear the voice of Jesus and believe, the judgment is passed. In fact, what Jesus says is, right now, the hour is coming, but is also right now that you will have life. If you hear my voice and obey, you have life. And by obey, John 6, 28. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, you will have life life, and there will be no judgment for you. It will be passed over. Jesus is the Son, and he has the power and authority to give life and to issue judgment. Have you heard him? Do you hear him now? Let's pray. Lord, as confusing, as hard as it is for me to grasp passages like this, for us to kind of plunge into the deep, the deep weeds of theology as you talk about your relationship with the Father, I pray that in the midst of all of that, that we would hear your voice that we would believe in the Father who has sent you. That we would hear the voice, not just talking, like Christopher Hitchens hears, but that we would actually hear in a saving way. That we would believe so that we may have life, so that we do not face the judgment. We ask it in Jesus' name.